Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us here today. I'm joined at the podium today by the Minister for Health and Social Care and also online by our Director of Public Health. It has been a few weeks since I last updated you on the COVID-19 situation on our island and the gap between briefings reflects the broadly stable situation both here and across the water. Government has used this time to continue to review the island's COVID-19 response, particularly measures in place at our borders. It has been and remains our intention to restore restriction-free travel between the Isle of Man and our neighbours, but we have always been clear that the time and the circumstances here on the island as well as in the jurisdictions around us must be right. The Council of Ministers met yesterday to review our border measures. We did so in the context of a plateau in COVID-19 case numbers here on the island, the high proportion of our population who are now vaccinated, relative stability in hospital admissions and broad equilibrium in case numbers between the Isle of Man, the UK and Ireland. But we did so conscious of the return of pupils to schools this week and the approach of winter, both of which could have an impact on COVID case numbers and hospital admissions. We are ever mindful of the need to balance progressing towards normality against the potential risks the virus still poses to our community. After careful consideration, it was felt that the time was right to take another step forward, but a cautious one, another baby step. Currently, residents aged 18 and over who are not fully vaccinated and wish to travel to the island are required to apply for a Manx travel permit, whilst those who are fully vaccinated are required to apply for a vaccination exemption. I am pleased to announce that this process will end for residents with the last flight and ferry this coming Wednesday. Landing forms will, however, still be required for all travellers as this includes a health declaration. We also reviewed our travel pathways. Those who are fully vaccinated can travel to the island without the need to isolate or have a COVID test when they arrive, so long as they have not been to any countries on the red travel list. Those who are not fully vaccinated can access the test to release pathway so long as they have only been in the common travel area or a green list country. If they've been to an amber list country, they can have access to the seven day pathway. And those who have been to red country must quarantine in the United Kingdom. After carefully considering these restrictions, again reflecting on the stable position the island is in, and recognising the impact these restrictions have on residents, we are ready to take another baby step forward here as well. From Thursday the 16th of September, we are removing the requirement for testing and isolation for any resident who is not fully vaccinated where they have only travelled within the common travel area. That is England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the Channel Islands in the coming 10 days before returning to the island. This in effect creates a new Isle of Man resident travel pathway for those who have been in the common travel area. The rules for those arriving here who have travelled from green and amber list countries remain the same and of course direct entry from red list countries remains prohibited. These measures were originally put in place to protect our community 
and have served their purpose well. But the Council of Ministers is mindful that they can make travelling complicated and difficult for some. They should only be in place as long as they remain necessary as a measure to protect our community and benefit our island. These steps take us in the right direction, and whilst they move us forward, we feel they are proportionate, enabling us to continue our process of gradually easing border restrictions. Of course we want this to be a one-way journey, but I must caveat these changes by making clear the situation remains under constant review. We will monitor what impact these changes have on our community in terms of case numbers and hospital admissions. In time, we hope that we can look at how measures can be eased for non-residents travelling to the Isle of Man as part of our journey to remove our remaining border restrictions. But we must take care with the number of unvaccinated visitors coming to the island, particularly around that all-important hospital capacity. And so that is why this change is limited to residents only in the first instance. The Council of Ministers feels the changes represent a positive transitional step forward. Now, despite removing these measures, testing remains vital in detecting cases of COVID-19, and I would strongly encourage anyone travelling to the island to undertake lateral flow tests in the days following their arrival. These are freely available from a number of pharmacies around the island and can be ordered online for free at gov.im forward slash COVID-19. In a further step to make travelling less complex and to streamline processes at our borders, I am pleased to announce that scanners will be installed allowing people to self-serve by scanning QR codes of their documentation. We hope this will improve throughput, although our border teams will continue to check identification and monitor residency status of travellers. Continuing the theme of making life easier for people at the border, I am pleased to advise that we are partially reopening Peel Harbour, also from Thursday the 16th of September. I must emphasise the word partial. There will be limited windows for docking and bookings will be required. Nonetheless, the Council of Ministers feels this is another positive step in the right direction. More detail on this will be published next week. This package of changes are the latest steps in the long journey of this pandemic. Throughout, we have regularly reviewed and adapted our plans to ensure we are well positioned to respond to COVID and its impact on our health, our community and our economy. We have again reviewed our approach in light of the changing situation on the island and around us and factoring in all we have learned throughout this pandemic and what may lie ahead. Today we are publishing our revised plan titled Learning to Live in a World with COVID-19. It sets out the current considerations and rationale for government decision making over the next one to three months. The announcements today form part of this. It recognises that while the vaccination programme has contributed significantly to the island's defences, the island continues to, re to represent a threat to island life, particularly if a new variant which evades vaccines emerges and spreads. You can read this plan online at gov.im forward slash COVID-19. One final area I want to cover is the number of deaths on the island from COVID-19. 
You may be aware that the Public Health Directorate has recently started publishing weekly COVID-19 surveillance reports. As part of this work, a decision was taken to review all death certificates back to January 2020, the start of the pandemic. Our public health team have reviewed over 1,400 certificates for any mention of COVID-19 and importantly, regardless of whether the individuals had the virus at the time of death. This process has identified 10 deaths that are now classified as being COVID-19 related, three of which were reported on Monday. It takes the total number of COVID-related deaths on the island to 48. A painful number to see written down and to have to read aloud. Public Health will continue to monitor causes of the death on the island on a weekly basis for its ongoing surveillance reports. This will ensure we have the full picture and that all COVID-related deaths are included in official figures and in line with methods utilised by other jurisdictions. It is absolutely vital that the Government and the Public Health has the full picture in relation to COVID-19 and the loss of life in our community. Deaths occur in people's homes, in care facilities and in hospital, and the processes can differ for each. The certification by doctors, the involvement of funeral directors, the involvement of the hospital mortuary and sometimes the coroner. What does not differ, however, is that every death requires a certified death certificate, which must be lodged with the General Registry. For this reason, the Council of Ministers has agreed that the weekly public health surveillance report will now be used as the primary method for reporting COVID-related deaths going forward. Whilst this will mean a shift to weekly instead of daily reporting of any COVID-related fatalities, it is important that everyone can have access to accurate data and that they can have faith in the completeness of that data. I am also aware that sadly there have been three further deaths this week that are likely to be COVID-19 related, so will feature in future reports. This news will be devastating for the friends and families involved and my thoughts and condolences are with all of them. David, perhaps you could go into a little more detail on what work has been undertaken. Thank you, Chief Minister. As the Chief Minister has said, over 1,400 death certificates have been gone through by the public health and wider team um, to establish if COVID was the cause of any other deaths than the ones we were aware of. COVID can be established as a cause of death in many various ways. So, for instance, there may be someone who's died who didn't even know that they were COVID positive, and it may only be established at the time of autopsy or after death. There is also, for instance, cases where someone may have recovered from COVID, um, but a comorbidity that they had has been affected by COVID, and they then die at a later date, and the issue, underlying issue has been exasperated by COVID. That death would then be certified by the GP, and the death certificate may well state COVID-19, but that person won't have been through any of our processes because they would have been recorded as free of COVID, so wouldn't necessarily be picked up. So I'd like to take the 
opportunity to thank Public Health and the wider team for what has been a massive piece of work to go back through and check the individual debt certificates to get to the point we are today. This is exactly the same process that's been undertaken in the UK by the Office of National Statistics, obviously on a much larger scale, to go back and validate their figures. So the Public Health Surveillance Report going forward is the most accurate way for us to be able to report those figures. And although it's moving from daily to weekly reporting, as the Chief Minister has said, it is essential that we maintain one level of reporting, and that is the most accurate to be able to do it. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, David. And now let's take some questions. And first we have Siobhan Fletcher from Alaman Newspapers. Good afternoon, Siobhan. Pastor Mike, Chief Minister. Um, the US, Canada, France and the Netherlands are among the countries which are already vaccinating children aged 12 and over. Now, we understand that the vaccines for healthy children aged 12 to 15 are not currently being recommended by the JCVI, but the UK's four chief medical officers are currently reviewing the matter further. If a government in the UK goes against the JCVI advice and gives the go-ahead, so say NHS England, for example, Will we follow suit on the island? Well, really, I suppose that would be based, whatever we do is based on advice when it comes to vaccine from our own experts, based on the advice they receive in working with um, our UK counterparts. So I don't know whether David or Dr Ewart wants to come straight in on that. Yeah, I, I'll come in, Chief Minister, and then I'll pass over to Dr Ewart, if I may. The JCVI is the professional body, both here and in the UK, that is able to advise on this. When it comes to children, it's around balance of risk, um, and that is one of the reasons why the JCVI has been weighing up the evidence and hasn't yet um, published um, a decision. I must say I, I would find it rather unusual if the UK went ahead to despite JCVI guidance. Um, I'm not aware, unless Dr Ewart can correct me in a few minutes, of any occasion where the UK government has actually gone against JCVI advice. So I would expect that the UK government would go with whatever the JCVI recommends. Um, if the UK government did go against JCVI, we would then have to seek advice from our public health professionals and weigh up that balance of risk. But I'll hand over to Dr Ewart. Thank you, Minister. Um, yes, there's little to add to the, the account you've just given. Clearly, JCVI is an internationally recognised body of experts, and we have no expertise on Ireland that could directly challenge their assessment, analysis and conclusions, um, and we certainly wouldn't expect to do that. JCVI has been very clear about the parameters within which their decision has been made, which is, to, to put it in a nutshell, looking at the medical evidence. Now, there are wider issues that can be taken into account in a decision, which might be about economics or educational benefit, um, those kind of things, which JCVI is very clear are not within its remit. So those are the kind of wider things that the chief medical officers will be taking into consideration. And so their assessment will be wider in that respect than JCVI's, but they certainly will not be challenging the expertise and competence on the vaccine and clinical side of things that JCVI will have covered. So I think um, we will obviously look at what comes out from the chief medical officers in due course, and then there will be an issue of how we assess that um, for our context on Ireland. As the Minister has said. Your next question, Siobhan. 
So again, in terms of following on advice from elsewhere in the UK and, and around the world, really, people in um, England need certain venue. People in England need vaccine passports to attend certain events and venues in um, England from a, the end of this month. In Scotland, it's from October the first. Wales seems to set to follow imminently. Are we going to follow suit, especially considering the further border relaxations you've announced today? Well, I think we'll be monitoring this, this situation. Obviously, any resident on the Isle of Man going to the UK will have to have the necessary paperwork if they want to go to, say, a football match or, or a, a pop concert, etc. So it's something we'll be monitoring. David? Yeah, at the moment, we're not suggesting that we are going to be imposing any restrictions on any events on Ireland, just to cover off that um, side of your question. In relation to those who are going to festivals or events in the UK where there's requirements, we are working with the UK to see if we can have access to that side of the app as well, which can be used at the festivals. Um, and also, of course, there is the option of most of these events where not just on vaccination status, but also on negative test requirement. Now, while we don't have access to the um, QR coded lateral flow tests, these can be obtained from chemists in the UK. And what I know that people have done is they have actually travelled into the UK, even if it's on the day of the festival, gone to Boots or another chemists, got one of those tests free of charge, tested themselves and then uploaded it into the app. Um, so Manx residents can actually do that in order to access events. But certainly for on-island events at the moment, while we monitor the situation, there are no proposals at the moment to bring in vaccine restrictions around events on Ireland at this current time. Thank you for your question, Siobhan. Can I just, before I move on to Sam, um, ask people to, you know, I, in my speech I did say if, if people would take a lateral flow when they come back, from the UK as a, as a precaution for a number of days. And obviously, if you do go to a football match or a heavily built-up area of, of population, I, I would hope that all people will be sensible and think of A, of themselves, but also of their neighbours and friends and, and have the lateral flow test. OK, next we have Sam Turton from Jeff. Good afternoon, Sam. Fast am I. Uh, fast am I, Chief Minister. Just in terms of the announcements you made around borders today, what consultation has been had with the EAG and when will this when will their advice be published? The information has been um, discussed with, with with our medical um, advisors. Um, we only got that information um, yesterday, and therefore we will be sharing all of the information with the EAG. But the information comes to ourselves first. We got it yesterday in a, in a paper, and we've made the decision, and we're going forward today. So the EAG wasn't consulted before the decision was made? No. No, the, okay. the EAG, EAG is there to give us advice, and which we, of course, listen to and, and take on board. But this was um, evidence that we've received from our, our, our medics, etc., on, on how we go forward. I don't know, David, if you want to add anything Yeah, if to I that. can come in on that, Chief Minister, as well. Um, so in terms of the advice in relation to this, this is something that has been looked at for quite a while. Um, in terms of the medical teams and public health, both of them are fully on board with the decision that we have made. Um, in fact, I did ask the question and I believe I was told it was unanimous um, in relation to supporting this move. And it is just the next step. It applies only to residents. Um, and it is something that we've laid out previously we would consider um, as potentially our next step to allow more freedom of movement for residents. Uh, thank you. And sticking with the topic of advice, we've been asked about uh, the vaccine booster programme. We've heard in the UK and England especially, it's starting to get 
done in care homes, we believe. When are we expecting to see this on Ireland? Well, I'll, I'll bring in um, David and then maybe Dr. Hubert. I don't believe the full data is out there yet, Sam, but maybe they'll be able to um, advise. Yeah, so my understanding is in the UK it's being proposed at the moment um, in relation to care homes. It hasn't actually started yet, is my understanding. Um, at the moment it's being talked about potentially those over 70, those in care homes. The bit that has been agreed is about those who are immune suppressed, um, receiving a third dose, and um, it, within the age range of children as well, and that um, at 12 and over, and that we will be looking to roll out and get clinics up and running to be able to do. Um, and and we are currently going through the GP records because they obviously hold the information in relation to who those individuals are to be able to build up a list. And those people who meet that criteria will be written to shortly and invited to come for a booster dose. But in terms of the care homes and the over 70s brackets, which I think is what you're referring to, Sam, at the moment, I believe it's still just suggested rather than actually agreed as a rollout, unless Dr. Hewitt has more up to date information than I do. Uh, no, Minister, that's correct. Um, the final decision on the booster programme and how it would be rolled out and where the groups would be included in that is still awaited. Um, the issue for the immunosuppressed, that is not about a booster. That is about, about, it's quite a nuanced point, this, if you like. But for those who are immunosuppressed, the third dose for them is a third primary dose, not a booster dose. And the rationale for that is that if you're immune suppressed, a proportion of people in that group will not have had a full response to the first two doses. So the rationale for offering a third dose is just to give them a further chance to mount a response that will get them up to the sort of level that somebody who isn't immunosuppressed would get after two doses. So it's important that we consider those as separate groups. It's the immunosuppressed having three primary doses and then there's the bit that hasn't been decided yet which is the purpose um, of the booster dose for the other groups hey. thanks very much sam now we move on to alex wotton from bbc isle of man good afternoon alex fastamai good afternoon um can i just talk about the recently uh, identified deaths if i may um Presumably these are since February, but could you give us a bit of a clearer understanding of the timeline of these, when they happened, and just a bit of a, a bit more information if possible? Okay, I think that's for David. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, um, I'll bring Dr Hewitt in a minute, but it's throughout the pandemic period, so it's not just purely since February, um, because as I explained earlier, you can have cases that we may not necessarily have picked up on. So, for instance, if you had someone who was marked as recovered from COVID-19, but they've had an underlying condition that's been exasperated by COVID, they may continue with that condition but deteriorate and then um, sadly pass away. And when it comes to the certification, the GP, he may well have certified COVID-19 as the cause of death, but that wouldn't have gone through the 111 system or through the centralised systems because it's something that's happened in the community. That can only be done by a reconciliation of going back through the death certificates for the period. Um, you may also have a situation where there's someone who may not know they've had COVID, 
um, who then eventually, after a condition, dies, um, and then it's identified, say, at autopsy or a coroner's report, and then certified. Again, it wouldn't necessarily have gone through the 111 system because they've never been an identified case. So that's what public health has been doing. This has been exactly the same position in the UK as well with the Office of National Statistics. They've been going back through all of the death certificates over the period and actually correlating it with the information that we have um, compared to what has actually been put into the registry on individual death certificates. And that's where the numbers come from. So it's not as simplistic as saying, oh, there was one period where a group of deaths was missed. It's actually due to the way deaths are reported. You can also have um, time lagging information as well, because a cause of death might not be established for a period of time, or in fact reported for up to 28 days in any, in any case. So there's always going to be that information. But I'll bring Dr. Hewitt in. Um, you've given a very clear and full description, Minister, so I, I don't think I've got anything to add to that. Thank you. Okay, so just for clarification, this, not, this isn't unique to the Isle of Man. Other jurisdictions are going through this process right back to day one to, to ensure that no cases have slipped through the net, and that's what's happened. We've updated it to show people. Okay, well, just within those 10 then, and potentially uh, it might be more relevant for the latest three, because they are, of course, the recent um, ones. Can you tell us whether they were in hospitals or care settings or in the community? Right. I'm, I'm not aware of that information. That's information that doesn't get shared with me, but I don't know, David. Yeah, we, we can't report on individual cases or groups in, in that way, unfortunately. Um, but what I can what I can say is these, again, are, you know, the most recent ones. Um, it would depend upon the death certificate certification. Um, so as the Chief Minister referred to there, where he said he's aware there may be three more um, to be added, it will depend what actually comes through once the death is, deaths are actually certified. So just for clarification... You, you had if it was in the community or in the hospital on the dashboard, though, until now. Well, no, we publish, we publish in relation to hospital figures. We don't go into detail on the individual deaths and where they occurred. OK. Right, thank you very much. Now we move on to Leanne Cook from 3FM. Good afternoon, Leanne. Fast am I. Good afternoon, Chief Minister. A reoccurring question we've had from the public. Can you just revisit and clarify where the island and the UK needs to stand for restriction-free travel to be considered or re-implemented? So can you, can you repeat that question? I'm just trying to... Yeah. No problem. They're just a reoccurring question we've had from members of the public. They're just wanting a bit of clarification on where the island needs to stand and the UK for restriction-free travel to be reintroduced between the island and the UK and around the world, really. Well, obviously, at this moment in time, we've removed restriction-free travel for all Manx residents who go to the common travel area. Um, the UK government will look at case numbers in other jurisdictions and issue its lists on... Um, what is acceptable, uh, the number of cases, and we obviously um, take account in, in, into that. Um, we hope, sincerely hope, that in the near future we will be able to open up for all UK residents, but we're making this small step at this moment in time to allow our own residents the free movement as long as they've just been in the common travel area. But it'll be greater detail, uh, data that will be needed on case numbers and jurisdictions to widen that. But I don't know, again, David and Dr. Ewart might want to expand. Yeah, um, firstly, just before I answer Leanne's question, if I come back to Alex's question, because I think I slightly misunderstood it, I've just rolled it back around my head. 
Um, I think what you were asking, Alex, was about the division between community and hospital. Um, we wouldn't go down to the granular detail of saying if someone died in a care home, etc. But we do obviously report on the dashboard between community and hospital. Um, if you're talking about the specific three cases, we won't know that yet because we'll be waiting for the deaths to be formally certified as COVID deaths before that information becomes available. And it's at that point it would be recorded whether it was a hospital death or a community death. So hopefully that gives a bit more clarity. And um, what I meant by we don't go down into the granular detail of saying it was in this particular setting, we divide it between community and hospital. Um, so hopefully that gives a bit more uh, clarity to you. Um, in relation to um, Leanne from um, and what Leanne just raised at 3FM, it's important that we do things in stages. Um, this is the next step along the path. So, in, so it's natural that the first thing we should do is relax things for our own residents on Ireland. What we need to do is exactly what we've done throughout the entire pandemic period, is make small changes, see what the effect is by pausing and reflecting on what actually happens once those changes are made. That's what we'll be doing and then dependent upon what we see from the effect of doing that, that's when we can consider the next stage. And of course, the next stage would be looking at people who aren't resident on Ireland. And I'll bring Dr. Hewitt in in case she's anything she wishes to add. Thank you. Yes, I mean, ju just to add to that, that of course, one of the, the big issues with this whole pandemic is that it's not, it's neither static nor going in one direction only. It's hugely dynamic and it can vary very widely, you know, Countries can have falling numbers and then suddenly the pattern shifts and their numbers rise. Um, that can affect us. It can affect the countries that people are traveling to and from. So we constantly have to be looking at that and taking into account not only what's happening here, but what's happening elsewhere, particularly in the common travel area, but elsewhere. So it is something that has to be monitored constantly. And because of that, that's really the rationale for doing the baby steps approach so that you haven't kind of lost control of a situation before you've understood what the impact might be and you also have time to react to things that may be changing in the areas under consideration as well thank you thank you and my second question in a previous press conference you said around eight thousand people on island hadn't come forward to be vaccinated do you have an updated figure on how many people on island remain unvaccinated Okay, David, have you got the latest? Um, yeah, it'll that? be with the additional ones. It's more. It's about seven and a half now. Um, we've crossed over the. We've crossed over the ninety percent of the adult population actually having had um, one dose. That's nine out of every ten adults have now had at least one dose. Of those having had second doses, ninety-seven percent of those that have come forward are now double dosed. Um, so it's roughly around about seven and a half on the figures that we have that still haven't come forward. Thank you. Thank you very much, Liana. Now, last but not least, Rob Pritchard from Manx Radio. Fast am I, Rob? Fast am I. Um, I just wanted to go back briefly just to the question that Alex brought up about care homes. Um, Minister Ashford, you said that you can't go down to, as you put it, obviously the, the, the smaller details about whether they're in care home settings, but government obviously announced publicly the situation around COVID-19 deaths in Abbotswood when they happened. So what's changed? The difference is, Abbotswood, you had quite high numbers, um, to be frank, Rob. Um, so there wasn't personally identifiable information in there. If you were to have one death and it was in one particular care home, um, then it classes as identifiable information, which I've been advised we can't share without permission. 
So there's no way at all to show how many deaths there are in care homes unless they reach a certain threshold. Yeah, so if we so if it reaches a certain threshold, then yes, but what we can't do is each time we have a death, give the individualised setting. What we split it by, um, which we've done previously on the death de uh, the on the death statistics, is whether it's a community death or a death in hospital. What what is that threshold? Do you have a number? Um, I don't. It would depend upon what the data protection team says is an appropriate threshold. But if they were single, if it was a single death at a single time, then no, it wouldn't be disclosed in that way. And if you actually go back and look at the way that we covered the deaths in Abbotswood and you go back to those early press conferences, many of which I fronted, you will actually see we announced it as the numbers crept up. Supplementary to that, in terms of the additional deaths that have now been confirmed earlier today, these go back to, as you say, death certificates from January 2020. We're now in September 2021, so not far off two years from that January point. How come it's taken this long to go back through that, to go through that process? I mean, yes, obviously you've clarified that sometimes the circumstances of death do take time to determine, but to go back all the way to there at this point, why is it taking this long to start that process? Because it's not an automatic process. It has to be gone through manually, and that means going through manually via the registry 1,400 different death certificates. We mustn't actually underestimate the amount of work that's had to go into this to rebalancing. As I've said, this is exactly the same as happened in other jurisdictions. The ONS has been doing it in the UK. In fact, the UK actually has a much more simplified way of reporting deaths because they report deaths um, where anyone has died within 28 days of a positive result. So it may actually catch deaths that aren't COVID-related in the UK. We've actually always recorded it of with or of COVID, um, but we've had to go back through 1,400 death certificates to establish if COVID was one of the uh, causes of death. And I'll bring the Director of Public Health in. Yes, thank you, Minister. I mean, obviously, on Ireland, we have an extremely small team. Uh, we don't have the resources that the ONS does, for example. Um, and for much of the COVID pandemic, uh, the data and intelligence team was actually dealing with the operational response to COVID and the data requirements around that. So they did not have the capacity to actually do this full look back and audit exercise. Um, so that's why it's been done at this stage, now that they do have the capacity and that we had an agreed protocol to look back and understand what it was we were counting and make sure everything was consistent. Thank you. Okay, thank you. My, my, my second question, obviously there were more deaths added to the surveillance report that came out earlier this week. It's part of that um, new total of 10 additional ones that you've announced today. Um, Public Health obviously does say in the surveillance report that some of the reasons behind that have already been discussed about why there might be a time lag to determine the cause of death. But when we're talking about you know, continuing transparency around this situation and the fact that we've had uh, discrepancies that have had to be clarified between public health reports and, say, the COVID dashboard that's more publicly available, how can members of the public truly trust the statistics that are being put out when we're getting different information from different sources? David, you want to tell yeah, uh, Rob, again, I've explained why there is that discrepancy, because there are people and the way deaths are recorded. So to give that example again I gave before, you may have someone who's actually 
had COVID, so they've been recorded in the COVID statistics. They've recovered from COVID um, and they've gone through the period. As far as we're concerned, they're recovered. They've been marked as recovered on the statistics. They've got an underlying health condition. That underlying health condition has been exasperated by COVID and it may take a period of time before sadly that person passes away. At the point they, are pass, they pass away, their death is investigated. Now, they may well be certified by the GP that that underlying health condition um, has been exasperated by COVID, so COVID is the cause of death. That wouldn't come through the 111 team. It wouldn't come through um, the reconciliations team in there, so it wouldn't have appeared on the, da uh, the, on the dashboard because it simply would have appeared on the death certificate when it went to the registry. So that's what this exercise has been about, is reconciling that. And that's why we're saying we're now going to shift to rather than just reporting on the dashboard, we're going to use the public health surveillance report because going forward, the public health surveillance report will be reconciling the death certificates regardless of what's gone through the centralised team. And you may, like I say, also have had cases where people have died without even knowing they've had COVID. So again, have never been through any of our procedures or systems, but they have not then, say, for instance, due to age, required um, a coroner's of inquest. They've simply been certified as having died with COVID and that certificate lodged with the registry. But again, I'll bring the Director of Public Health in in case she wants anything to add on that. Yes, I mean, that, that's been a very full description, Minister. I mean, in respect of the death certificate, um, that is something that every death has to have. So it is a source of truth that is available for every death in a way that some of the other lines of communication about events isn't, um, because there can be you know, more variation in, does somebody think to report it, do they not? But obviously once a death has occurred, it legally has to go through the death certification process and through the registry. So that is the best way of consistently picking up the data. And if the doctor who certified the cause of death has listed COVID on the death certificate as an underlying cause, we will pick it up and we will count it. So that is the most robust way of picking up all the causes of death that are related to COVID. So just what, one final supplementary, just on top of that, you yourselves in government issued a statement on Monday about reporting COVID-19 related deaths. One of the things that was mentioned was you considering options of making things clearer to members of the public. Is that public health report that option to make it clearer? Is that the way going forward? In a, in a word, Rob, yes. Um, and like I say, it's not just us that's been going through this process. The ONS has in the UK, the Republic of Ireland's been going through a similar process, as have the other Crown dependencies as well, to make sure that we can reconcile our data. Because like I say, death reporting isn't through one particular avenue. Um, there's actually a multitude of factors in there that can actually affect where it's recorded and how. And the best way to pick that up is through the public health surveillance report which will be looking at the all death certificates that are coming through the system thank you okay thanks very much for all those questions i think it's, it's important to point out that all jurisdictions have been under the cosh pressures of work because of covid19 and this is the opportunity for us when things are in, in a plateau level for for our officers to catch up and do this sort of review. We're not unique, the, as the Health Minister has just said, the, the United Kingdom and um, Southern Ireland have done exactly the same as us. It's just us, when we have a, a minute where there is some time for officers to be able to do this review, we've done it along with other jurisdictions. We've found some anomalies and we're sharing it with you. But that's all today. Thank you all very much for the questions. I hope you all have a pleasant weekend 
and we'll we'll speak soon. Okay, bye bye. You've been listening to the uh, government's uh, COVID-19 media briefing. Uh, the briefing featured the uh, Minister for the Department of Health and Social Care, David Ashford. He is standing for re-election as a candidate in Douglas North for the general election on the 23rd of September. Other candidates who are standing in Douglas North are Kevin Oliphant-Smith, Ralph Peake and John Wannenberg. You can find full details of all the candidates standing for election on the 23rd of September at Manx Radio's general election website at manxradio.com.